Imagine a really old-looking map, rough paper that smells like dust and over 100 years on a shelf. A network of roads in black are lined by the thick red arms of thoroughfares. This ancient-looking map could be any other city, with stretches of green parks, a smattering of blue rivers and lakes. But there is something on this map I recognize as my own, something distinct, a small pocket of land shaped like a hill contoured by the loop of the Genesee River. This little topographical rarity belongs to Rochester, New York, and almost 20 years after the creation of this map, it will belong to students of the University of Rochester who called this piece of land, this city, home. The map I'm looking at was a vision for Rochester's urban future. Closing my eyes, I can place myself on those proposed streets, sidewalks, and railways. All around me, there is noise. For a city teeming with movement, 1911 was a historic moment where Rochester attempted to structure itself as a place more easily traveled, not just by automobiles, but by freeing singular modes of movement, like the bicycle. Let's take a tour through the streets of Rochester in 1911 to witness as our city pedaled to create progress. I'm Penny Sergi. I'm Anutza Latapanya. And I'm Brad Beckwith. And we are your hosts for Here You Are, Psychopaths, Episode 3, Rochester's 1911 City Plan, A Path Not Taken. At the turn of the 20th century, bicycle popularity in the United States had reached a new peak. And at the forefront was the blossoming city of Rochester, New York. It contained a pioneering network of side paths, or bike lanes, that separated cyclists from other traffic. Across the United States in the 19th century, there were various iterations of bicycle devices that caused some sudden surges of interest, and they waxed and waned, usually in pretty short order. And then in the 1890s, by the time what we call the safety bicycle, which is really just the shape of the bicycle that we would all recognize today of two equal size wheels, simple chain system, but a pretty basic bicycle that we would all be able to ride and recognize today, becomes popular and democratized. This is Dr. Evan Friss, Associate Professor of U.S. Urban and Public History at James Madison University. Friss is also the author of two books about cycling history alongside a host of articles related to the rise and fall of cycling in the United States, most specifically within urban sectors. By the end of the 1890s, more than 40,000 bicycles registered in Rochester. You know, in a decade before, there was probably a couple of hundred bicycles total. And that 40,000 number is surely an undercount because not everybody wants to pay a tax. So those are the people who sort of complied. This was a remarkable transformation, but Rochester had much more than bikes. It was a bustling city with many modes of transportation fighting for their own space on these roads. Something in the city needed to give. Enter the 1911 plan. It is quiet and peaceful here, standing in Genesee Valley Park, sitting just southwest of the city and next door to the U of R. Expansive and green, a great place to walk, bike, I can feel the timelessness in the need of a beautiful place like this. Now, picture a relatively small booklet, barely more than 40 pages. Inside this little guide, one would find big plans to improve Rochester's civic center and public buildings like libraries and a grand city hall, neighborhood parks and parkways. 
The authors of the 1911 plan, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. and Arnold W. Brunner, designed this blueprint of Rochester around improved ways of moving people and goods in a growing city. Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., son of renowned landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted, was commissioned by the local Rochester municipality to create a vision of a city that would support expansion. For example, more public amenities, more open space, and wider roads. The authors of the 1911 plan expressed the removal of unsightly infrastructure and incorporating more natural elements in the city for overall beautification. They were influenced by the City Beautiful movement, a nationwide push for cleaner cities, which they hoped would promote a higher quality of living. However, the plan was more than just this. It presented a vision ahead of its time by imagining a metropolis that was not completely car-centric, as most large cities are today. It instead attempts to make roads accessible for all the different ways to get around. The authors of the 1911 plan wrote, A living city cannot stand still. Cities had a bad reputation, condemned as places where virtue went to die, where corruption and moral deterioration ran rampant throughout loud and dirty streets. The intention of the plan was to, as the authors wrote, safeguard the public welfare. I am standing on the edge of Park Ave. Today, the street facilitates a never-ending flow of cars, most of which travel the area to access the vast amounts of public commerce that the neighborhood has to offer. Main thoroughfares were planned to be utilized, most importantly, by general traffic, the traffic of streetcars, horses, pedestrians, and bicycles. Proposed thoroughfares within the city of Rochester's 1911 plan sought to mimic those established in cities like London and Munich, with wide streets and adjacent sidewalks that allowed for traffic to pass smoothly for both small and larger forms of transportation, all while integrating the space in between for aesthetically pleasing trees and shrubbery. I am now standing on the edge of Highland Park, designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. This park sits just south of the city, two miles northeast of Genesee Valley Park. In 1911, this park was well known not only for its commanding situation, but for its interesting, beautiful, and unusual display of flowers, trees, and shrubs. Next up on our journey through the 1911 plan is a parkway that would have connected Durand Eastman Park to Seneca Park. We are a few miles north of the city, close to beautiful Lake Ontario. Parkways were meant to connect more people to the beauty of vast natural parks like these, a beauty the authors of the plan expressed local parks are unable to give. These parks sat outside the inner city in suburban regions, emulating an escape to a countryside-like environment the city could not provide. The parkway would have also connected Durand Eastman Park to Turning Point Park, a present-day example of parkway infrastructure done right. Turning Point Park boasts 275 acres of wood along the Genesee River. It includes walking bridges and bike lanes, which allow connections to other trails and parks that make getting in and around the city more feasible for cyclists. This is just one example of a proposed parkway within the 1911 plan. Nowhere in this plan is any explicit mention of bicycles. However, the widespread use of bikes is an essential part of the story of Rochester's growth as a city. As historian Karen McCauley writes about the emergence of cycling, the bicycle allowed Americans the glorious debauch of speed and freedom, the likes of which they had never seen. 
However, one of the most important effects of the emergence of the bicycle in the early 20th century, particularly within Rochester, was how cycling attracted two sorts of people the city had in abundance in, the technologically innovative and the socially progressive. The bicycle brought specific light groups of people together and simultaneously separated people by race, gender, and class. The city beautiful ideal was realized in part by the elegance and freedom of the bicycle. Tensions between cyclists and non-cyclists have not changed. Although our technology may be more advanced and our cities may be bigger, the sentiments are the same. The archetype of a cyclist has constantly changed over time. Was it the upper-class white man or the delinquent teenager? The immigrant worker or the health nut? What stigma remains? The bicycle has always been a kind of divisive instrument. And it's usually not about the bicycle per se, but the bicycle is kind of a device that can be weaponized for all sorts of issues related to gender and class and ethnicity and control of public space, controlling people's behavior. Bicycles are the epitome of a device representative of alternative modes of transportation. It's a really human kind of experience. You know, it unlocks something. And I think the rider feels a sense of power and thrill and joy. So there's, there's a kind of enchantment to this using our own power, but kind of maximized through this relatively simple tool to be able to travel farther than we would on foot. You can feel the elements around you and you sort of feel a part of the world instead of just a, a more distant viewer like you would from the backseat of a car or driving. Rochester at its best, improved and enlarged, must still be Rochester. The 1911 plan echoes ideas raised in today's conversations to reimagine the city's infrastructure. No one form of transportation became dominant in this period, in the 1911 plan, the autocentric city was not fated to be. We can only point out that in every city, the freedom of the individual must often be sacrificed for the good of the community. The 1911 plan for the city of Rochester never came to fruition. The expenses for the proposed changes to public spaces and infrastructure were simply too much for the local municipality to comply with. Frederick Law Olmsted Sr. designed Rochester's most beautiful parks. However, his son's grand design for a city of interconnected parks and roads ultimately did not have its day. But this was not the end. Rochester's plan in progress for 2034 recalls elements of Olmsted's long-lost Rochester. The plan will reach not only cycling communities, but the city as a whole. It also hopes to have a lasting impact on future generations through current education and advocacy. Contrary to conventional wisdom, a car-centric city is not the only way to be modern. As American cities work to overturn the disruption and problems of the conquest of the automobile, they may look to the past for inspiration. The 1911 plan offers one alternative. When discussing the improvement of local streets, the plan states, For residential purposes, there is a coziness and quiet attractiveness about a street of moderate width to moderate length, a street through which no heavy traffic is induced to flow. A street with its short length or varying direction offers a marked and pleasant contrast with the interminable vistas of the thoroughfare that goes on indefinitely in an unbroken straight line. Cities are built and constantly reshaped. It's amazing to know that change can occur at any moment for any person, instead of by the single eclipse-like event of an ambitious plan. 
Implementing the bicycle along with all these other forms of transportation would have taken buy-in change at lots of moments. Creating a safer, greener city may not be the work of one grand plan, but a series of small steps forward. Today, Rochester bears little resemblance to the city proposed in that long-ago plan. The authors of the plan could not have foreseen the domination of the car. They would not have marveled at the garish automobile passing their beautiful parks in clouds of stifling exhaust. The people of 1911 hoped for a city of balance, an aesthetic masterpiece both functional and beautiful, clean and open. Shadows of this pastoral vision can be seen in our parks, but the fate of bicycle infrastructure would be abruptly halted here, at the turn of this bold new century. Cars continue to pose an immense threat to the welfare of our environment. A bike boom is on the horizon and might just be what our communities so desperately need. I like the idea of riding a bike. I appreciate the limitations of bikes and how by riding one, it extends my abilities where I am limited. A bicycle will not send me to the moon, but I can get places faster, and I can do so while decreasing my carbon footprint. The 1911 plan embraced the grace and simplicity of riding a bike. Perhaps soon, the borrowed streets down which our modern cyclists ride will someday be their own. Here You Are is a podcast created by students at the University of Rochester. This episode was created by Brad Beckwith, Anuta Latapanya, and Penny Sergi. Our sound designer and engineer for this episode was Anuta Latapanya. Our lead researcher was Brad Beckwith, and our episode producer was Penny Sergi. We'd also like to thank Evan Friss for his interview and Dominique Neveu for her voice acting. Music was provided by Azulai, Texana, Glass Obelisk, Landsman Duets, Calume, Trailhead, Kogura Station, Bitters, and Confectionery on Blue Dot Sessions. A special thank you to Hopper Bike Share for providing bikes for the Here You Are team this season. The executive producers are Thomas Fleischman and Steven Bresner. And be sure to check out the other episodes of Here You Are Season 5, Cycle Paths, at hereyouare.com or wherever you get your podcasts.